Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word. We're thankful for the gift of your son. We're thankful for the gift of your church, Lord. And the freedom that we have to worship you here this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we have a lot to cover today as we begin our sermon, so I'm going to just jump right in. And our main point today is pretty simple. It's a submit to suffering. Submit to suffering as you follow the shepherd of your soul. And since we're going to be talking a lot about slaves and servants today, I need to start by setting a little bit of historical context for you. So if you look with me at the first verse here, servants, be subject to your masters. We can't even get past the first few words of this verse without stumbling into a whole host of questions. What does he mean by a servant? Maybe that conjures to mind images of like a, a snooty British show with with butlers or something or or you know Alfred and Bruce Wayne or 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 maybe this word slaves conjures to mind images is is he talking about about slavery like during the civil war like that kind of slavery or is he talking about something else is that is that the same as being a servant or are these different and and why doesn't uh Peter condemn all slavery here. Is the Bible supporting slavery? Uh, is it saying this is okay, that it's not a problem? We have to examine all of these questions before we can even get into the passage. So just by way of a little bit of background here, in the Greek and Roman world, the Peter lived in servants and slaves, pretty much interchangeable words. There were slight gradations in difference, perhaps, but essentially the same job. Now, in the Roman world, you, you really had three groups of people. You had citizens, and then within that group, you had different tiers of citizens, but essentially citizens and then non-citizens. And with these non-citizens groups, you had slaves, and freedmen. So you're either a slave or you've been freed from slavery. And then you've got citizens, everyone else. Now, historian uh, Everett Ferguson says it's estimated. How many slaves were there? They estimate maybe one in five people in the general population was a slave. 20% of the population were slaves. In fact, he says uh, there was a proposal in the Senate, in the Roman Senate, the slaves be required to wear a special kind of clothes, because then we can identify who all the slaves were. And it was shot down because they realized, wait a second, if they see how numerous they are, we're going to be in serious trouble here. It was that significant portion of the population. Now, slaves came from just about every different avenue you can imagine. Some of them were prisoners of war, captured from foreign countries. Some of them had sold themselves on purpose into slavery. Like, I can't afford to pay my debts, so I'm going to sell myself into slavery to be able to pay them off. Some were captured and forced into slavery against their will. Others were born into it. And here's where it gets really interesting, because there were slaves operating every different tier of Roman society. So as Everett Ferguson says, their circumstances varied all the way from the very most privileged of imperial slaves serving the highest echelons of the Roman citizenship, all the way down 
to convicts, slaves serving in horrendous conditions in mines and on slave ships and galleys. Some even held positions similar to what we might call a civil servant today. So think any kind of government job. They're they're educated men and women serving in these roles in the Roman society. There were temple slaves. There were agricultural slaves. There were domestic slaves. That's probably what Peter is addressing here, specifically slaves serving in a household environment, uh, caring for children, tending to the household duties. Uh, You had slaves serving as pedagogues and teachers, industrial slaves, managers in agriculture and commerce and industry. And this is perhaps the most bizarre thing of all. Some of these slaves were even paid. <laughs> like they, they, it, it wasn't very common, but some of them could actually earn some money from the work that they did, and they could collect that up and then eventually be able to buy their freedom. So I, I say all this because I want you to see how far removed we are today from the kind of slavery that existed in the Greco-Roman world. It, it's completely different from most of our conceptions of what slavery might look like. It could describe, so when Peter's talking about slaves or servants, it could describe someone trapped, trapped in some horribly abusive situation all the way up to somebody who's serving in a sort of bureaucratic civil servant type role. But even in the best of situations, slaves were still, almost all for the most part, completely subject to the will of their masters. They had to go and do what their masters told them to do. Even in the best of situations, they were not free and they were at the bottom of the social ladder. One last comment before we get into the text itself. You have to keep in mind that Peter didn't live in a world where slavery was considered illegal or immoral. That's not his context. They didn't have the freedom or the funding to fight this as an, this institution. So Peter, he's not writing this letter to address you know, rich citizens with the power to bring about social change. He's writing to the poor, the oppressed, people with no rights, with no privileges, most of them without any money, trapped in situations that neither Peter nor his audience had any power to change. And so Peter's goal, as has been the case throughout his letter, is simply to bring them encouragement and hope in the middle of their suffering and struggle. Peter can't fix their problems, but he can minister to their souls in the middle of them. So, let's look at how he goes about doing that. Now first, first point today, Peter tells them to be subject to their masters, to be subject to their masters with all respect. If you look at verses 18 through 20, he tells them, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter says quite clearly, be subject, submit to those in authority over you. It's the same essential message that we heard last week from Pastor Michael. He says, not only when they're good and gentle, like any fool can do that, but he says, even when they're unjust. 
And then he says, look, if you get yourself in trouble for doing something foolish, don't come like crying to me and complaining like, oh, this is persecution. It's like, no, you're just being foolish. It's like a kid coming home saying, oh, my teachers, the worst teacher, they're so mean and horrible to me. It's like, well, what did you do? Well, I cheated on this test and I got sent to the principal's office. Like, well... Yeah, uh, you're being disciplined for doing wrong. That's not persecution. And Peter says the same thing is true here. That's, that's not persecution. Submit to your masters, do what's right, not just when they're good, also when they're unjust. But then he goes on and he says, when you live for God, and notice a little verse here, a little words here in verse 19, mindful of God, he says, when you're conscious of God's work in your life and your obedience to Him, and when out of a desire to please God, you are nevertheless unfairly and unjustly punished, then that is a gracious thing. In other words, that's commendable before God when that happens. He sees that. He honors that. Now from our time and place, that probably doesn't seem very encouraging or helpful advice. Thank you, Peter. That, how is this helping anyone who's trapped in slavery? Shouldn't he be condemning it? Shouldn't he be calling for resistance? Well, no. Not in this context. Remember, Christians are a fringe minority group in the Roman Empire at this time. They have little to no social standing. They're looked down on with suspicion. They're, they're harassed persecuted with anger. For Peter to advise any other course of action would be foolish and even dangerous. Remember, he's not writing, this letter is not meant to be a, a theological treatise on slavery, the rights and wrongs of slavery. He's writing to a very specific context as, at a specific time. He's writing to people who are literally slaves. He's not just writing about this in the abstract. He's writing to real people. So where is the encouragement in all this? Well, imagine you're a slave. You're working in an impossibly difficult situation, maybe an abusive situation. Even if there was no hope of literal freedom in this world, the gospel offered to Christians in this situation a better hope. A freedom from sin, freedom from condemnation, freedom from shame. No master, however evil, could ever take that away. So the gospel says to the unworthy, you are worthy. To those who have been objectified, Jesus says, I know you by name. I see the image of God himself in you. To those who have been trodden on and beaten down and abused and ignored, Jesus says, you are valuable. You're significant. Your life matters. And no evil master, however abusive, can take that away. Those truths are untouchable by human hand. No torturer, no, nor even any executioner can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. People have gone to their deaths holding fast to that truth. 
And this message concerning their fundamental value and significance in God's eyes has been embedded from the very first words of Peter's letter. Remember, Peter calls them, he says, These, to the elect exiles, you're chosen, you are special. More than that, he calls them, he says, uh, they're men and women who have been promised an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Remember, if you're a slave, you don't get an inheritance. You are someone else's inheritance. You get passed down to, to the next generation. And Peter says, no, no, no. You have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Or consider when Peter says that the prophets wrote about the grace that was to be yours. He's talking to people who technically probably didn't own anything at all. And he says the prophets of the Old Testament testified to a grace that is now yours and can never be taken away from you. And he says these are things that even angels long to look into. These slaves might live at the very bottom of the Roman social scale, but in God's eyes, what does he call them? He says, you are a chosen race. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who you really are. So although on the surface, some of this advice may seem like Peter's pandering to the Roman authorities, making life easy for the slave masters. He's actually been slowly working to subvert their authority throughout his letter. Because in the end, for a Christian, this is not our only not this is not our home. And the only person who has true authority in my life is Jesus Christ. So, what does this mean for us today? Well, obviously, there's application for any of us who are in some kind of employer-employee relationship or teacher-student or, or coach-athlete situation. And Peter's advice for all of us in that kind of a relationship is the same. It's to submit. Even if your boss is kind of mean and difficult and challenging. Even if your teacher grades you unfairly. Even if your coach constantly plays favorites. You submit out of reverence to God and in faith that God will vindicate you in the end. But I also don't want us to miss the fact that the passage also speaks to the plight of people who are still trapped in literal slavery today. According to the International Justice Mission, there are currently 40 million people trapped in slavery still today. Modern day slavery in countries all over the world. The majority of them are women and children. They don't have the resources or the ability to stand up and fight for themselves. They don't have the, the uh, recourse to courts and judges. How does Peter's advice speak to their situation? Well, on one hand, if you're the person trapped in slavery, then Peter's words, they still remain, retain some pragmatic advice. Submit. Trust God for vindication. Because, quite honestly, most slaves today, they don't have any other choice. That's the horrific nature of modern-day slavery. There is no way out. Look, if you don't like your job, if your boss is mean... You can quit. 
You can leave the team if you don't like your coach. All they can do is cling tightly to their faith in God and trust the Lord for vindication and rescue. Well, in that case, is it right for, for slaves to try and run away and escape? Well, Peter is not really addressing that situation here, but I would argue, yes, that's absolutely legitimate. Slavery is evil. It is wrong. Abuse is evil and wrong, and it is indeed quite legitimate to try and escape if the opportunity arises. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But of course, for most people trapped in slavery today, that is not an opportunity that is available for them. So where does that leave us? Well, while the people trapped in slavery may be unable to do anything about it, we don't have any excuse for not doing anything. In fact, for those of us who enjoy such astonishing levels of freedom here in America, we should be doing everything we can to bring justice to those who are oppressed in slavery around the world. We have resources that they do not. We know that slavery is evil and it needs to be confronted and we should do something about that. Look, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an expert in all the situations here, but this is why we support IJM, it's the International Justice Mission. And they go around the world, lawyers, working, advocating for people who are trapped in slavery in courts and justice systems around the world. They have the expertise to get involved and to rescue people, to make a real and tangible difference. But this, that's just one organization among many. Right here in Chicago, Naomi's House, a, a ministry of the Moody Church downtown, working to free people who are being trafficked and trapped in slavery. You can look these, these organizations up online. Research, educate yourself on what they're doing and pray about how to get involved. Pray that one day God will bring an end to all such exploitation wherever it takes place. Our second main point today is this follow in his footsteps. Follow in Jesus' footsteps. Looking at verses 21 through 23. Uh, you know, in the parking lot at the uh, school where you know, our daughter plays volleyball, they just uh, installed these new speed bumps. Uh, they're not like these gentle rolling ones that you can just kind of slide over. These are the worst speed bumps I've ever experienced in my life. You, have, you go two miles an hour and it still feels like it's breaking the suspension. They are outlandishly large and unnecessary, completely unnecessary. It should be a race. But I have no patience for minor inconveniences like this in my life. Like none. Zero. My, my tolerance for suffering, it ends with an annoying speed bump in a parking lot. I will do anything I can to avoid pain, suffering, struggle, heartache, challenge, all of it. And as a result, I've been pretty embarrassed and convicted over the last two weeks as we've been um, watching on television everything that's been happening in Afghanistan. 
watching the very real, legitimate pain and suffering people are enduring as they try to flee the country, doing anything and everything that they can to get out while they still can. What's even harder is thinking about all those who are still left, who cannot leave. And for the Christians, the pastors who are committed to staying there and ministering to their tiny congregations, the Christians who are left hiding their Bibles, hiding for their lives. And for these believers, Peter's words in this passage take on a special relevance. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When Peter says, for to this you have been called, he's talking about suffering. This means suffering. For to this suffering you have been called. It's not an accident. You didn't stumble into it by mistake. This is part of God's calling on your life to suffer for him. Clearly, that is not a message that I want to hear. I don't think anyone wants to hear that. But it's a message that many Christians are living and experiencing all around the world today. Not just in in Afghanistan, in North Korea, in Yemen, in Nigeria, in India. Men and women and children called to suffering for the sake of Christ, called to lay down their lives, called to live under constant surveillance and scrutiny, called to live with threats on their lives and on their families, called to worship in secret, forced to hide. How do you sustain your faith under that kind of duress? Well, look at the rest of the verse. There's comfort from knowing that we're not blazing some new trail that's never been walked down before. Christ walked this path before any of us. Setting an example for us, calling us to follow in his footsteps. The significant details may vary from person to person, but the suffering is the same. In other words, Christ isn't calling us to do something he hasn't already done himself. As Peter says, Jesus suffered for you. Meaning, on your behalf and for your benefit. In your place and for your blessing. We're familiar with the idea of Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, but but we don't always... Factor in that he did this, as Peter says, as an example for us to follow. Kids, think about the way that, that, that you learn cursive, writing, right? How do you do it? You have the, the book and, and it's got the outlines and you trace it out with your pen over and over again, learning the patterns of that writing. And that's the image that Peter uses here. We're like tracing our lives around the path that Jesus has set before us, following after his footsteps. So what does that look like, though? What does that mean to follow in his footsteps? Well, Peter expands that for us in the next verse. Jesus, he didn't commit any sin. He didn't lie. He didn't trade insults for insults. He didn't issue any threats. His demeanor throughout 
His suffering and death was one of faithful, patient, humble endurance. You know, the title of our sermon series here has been Hopeful and Holy and a Hostile World, right? That's the model commended for us by Christ. That's the model that Peter sets before us in this short letter. But I want to say, I think maybe this is aspirational, right? This is something that we're striving towards being. Right? Holy and hopeful in a hostile world. Because I think that often the reality is quite different. In fact, when I look around on the news and in social media, the way some Christians behave might better be summed up as hostile and hopeless in an unholy world. Like, if I was not a believer, that's how I would summarize much of Christianity. Hostile and confrontational in their attitudes. Hopeless in their outlook. Every election portrayed as the lost hope for mankind. Every new piece of legislation, the death knell of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Every opposing argument, a slippery slope to Armageddon. The posture seems often to be one of fight and not faith. The list of perceived enemies seems to get longer and longer and longer and longer. It's mentally and emotionally exhausting to live under such a consistently bleak and hopeless outlook on life. I dropped off Facebook entirely last year because I couldn't handle the constant anger and insults, the aggressive posturing, the bizarre pursuit of political power at any cost from Christians. I want to excuse it based on the fact that we've all been under tremendous amounts of stress over the last 18 months. And that is true. But I don't see an exception clause in this passage where Peter says, follow Christ's example by not insulting others when they insult you, except when you're stressed out and worn down and tired and hungry. And then it's fine. We may disagree, and we will. We may be frustrated, and that is true. We may feel obligated to stand up for the the things that we believe to be important, and we should. We live in a country where anyone and everyone has the freedom to speak their mind. Praise God. But freedom to speak openly doesn't mean freedom to speak uncharitably or unfairly, or aggressively. In fact, Christian freedom often means restraining our right to speak, choosing to listen first, to speak less, to understand more, to think the best of our opponents, even if they launch personal attacks against us. We don't go to the same level. We don't fight fire with fire. That's not the model Jesus sets before us right here. Instead, we should do what Peter says Jesus did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
As it says in Psalm 146, we don't put our trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. Our hope, our help, is in the God of Jacob, in the Lord, his God. Christ, our sure and steady anchor, who we just sung about at the beginning of of our service today. So my challenge today to you is, are your words filled with hope or with hostility? More importantly, what do your words say about your heart? What do they reflect about the true condition of your heart? Are you filled with confident trust in God? Or are you driven by uncertain fear about the future? Entrust yourself to God's care and humbly take up your cross to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Well, our final section today is this. Looking at verses 24 and 25. Rejoice in his rescue. Rejoice in his rescue. You may have noticed that throughout most of this section in 1 Peter, he's drawing uh, images and allusions and language that come straight from Isaiah 53. That's why we have Rebecca read that at the beginning of our service today. All these rich images coming straight from Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. Now verse 24 here, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This has sometimes been a source of confusion for people like, wait, was he hung on a tree or was he hung on a cross? Like, I, I, which one was it? Well, the word translated as tree here, just, it actually just means wood. Like any piece of wood. It could be a pole, it could be a stick, it could be the gallows that you would hang someone on, it could be stalks that you would put a prisoner in. But throughout the New Testament, it always refers to the cross that was made of wood. So why do we translate it as tree? Well, probably because Peter's trying to make an allusion here to Deuteronomy 21, which talks about the curse on any man who was hung on a tree, which links in Peter's mind with the idea of Jesus taking on the curse of sin on our behalf when he bore our sins in his body, as Peter says in verse 24. The point is that Jesus died a real death on a real cross so that we could be free from the real curse that sin has placed on our lives. And this death and, its subs- and his subsequent resurrection now brings us healing. By his wounds, we have been healed. We are, all of us, broken people. You don't even need to be an adult to realize this. Kids, you, you know already there are things that you do wrong in your life. Things you say and think that you wish you, you didn't, hadn't said or didn't say. Or wish that you thoughts you wish you didn't have in your head. Things you wish you could undo. Right? It's frustrating sometimes. It feels like there's, there's dirt you can't get off your shoes. Peter says that it was through Jesus' suffering and death that you've been healed. You've been made clean once again. Well, okay, you may be thinking about my shoes are still dirty. (laughs) I still can't get these thoughts out of my head. And it's frustrating. I feel the same way. 
it's all a lot of struggle. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to submit. I don't want to change. But that's part of living this side of heaven. We're not home yet. That's what part of that's what Peter's talking about in this letter. When he speaks of us being strangers and exiles, we're not there yet. So Peter's saying here, in effect, look, sin is no longer driving the car of your life. Sin is no longer in control, driving the car of your life. God is. But there's still this ongoing work of sanctification that takes place in our lives, the the fighting against the bad thoughts. And we can accomplish that through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, knowing that we are chosen and beloved in His sight. And in the meantime, Peter wants us to rejoice in the rescue that God has initiated on our behalf. And to do that, he switches to one last image here at the very end of this section. He says, We were straying like sheep, stumbling off into all kinds of trouble, but now we have returned to the shepherd of our souls. It's the perfect image to end this sermon with. Jesus, the shepherd of your soul, guiding, leading, protecting, feeding, nurturing, encouraging, a constant and encouraging presence through suffering, sorrow, darkness, even death, a loving presence who is gentle and compassionate and patient, even with you and me. A wise shepherd who knows the way we should go and leads us in it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for your gracious leading in our lives, for your gentle and compassionate spirit. Lord, for the model, the example that you set before us. And Lord, for leaving us your spirit who equips us to walk this road of suffering and submission and struggle that none of us want to walk down. And we can only do through your power and with your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.